Welcome to Shared Ground, where we meet to explore the lands and forests of eastern Canada, Mi'kma'ki, and our relationships to the rest of nature. We talk about ecology, conservation, forestry, and many interconnected issues. One of the main purposes of this podcast is to hear opinions and ideas from many different people. Nothing presented here is intended as the final word. Each perspective will hopefully lead to a better understanding of a bigger picture. I am Amanda Bostland, and I am in search of ideas, practices, and attitudes that offer mutual benefit for humans and all species for whom these lands are home. I believe in the importance of finding shared ground where as humans we can live well and meet our needs while contributing to thriving forests and the well-being of all the incredible life we share this planet with. My guest for this episode is Soren Bondrup-Nielsen. Soren is passionate about the outdoors and how we humans relate to nature. He was born in Denmark and at the age of 13 his family emigrated to Canada. Growing up in the country, he was immersed in the outdoors. His love of nature eventually led him to complete a PhD in zoology, and for 27 years, Soren was a professor in biology at Acadia University, where he taught ecology and conservation biology. We met for a chat by the ocean on the ancestral and unceded territory of the Mi'kmaq people. As well as my curiosity to learn from his knowledge and insights in conservation and forestry issues, I am always excited to meet someone who hails from Denmark because of my own ancestry. My father was born in Denmark, and I visited there for the first time a few years ago to meet some of my distant Danish family and to learn from the forest kindergartens there. After Soren and I chat a bit about our experiences with our Danish names, he answers a question I had about if there was a particular time he remembers when he knew he wanted to be involved in conservation. Uh, so maybe to start with, um, well, you're originally from Denmark, right? Yes. I'm a fellow part Dane, actually. I, I thought with your name, <laughs> um, Boston, that it, it must be Scandinavian yes. somehow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. and you're the first person I've heard pronounce it in the way that I heard it when I was in Denmark. Oh. I've been pronouncing it wrong my whole life. Oh, well. <laughs> so that's interesting as a Canadian, right? Yeah. Well, <laughs> but, my name being Soren, uh-huh. in Danish it's Soren. So it has a line through the O, which is a totally different letter. Right. And uh, but my, I, I came here with my parents in 1964. So back then there were no computers. So if you put a line through your O at that time, people thought there was a mis- mistake, right? Oh. So therefore it became Soren, and now I'm Soren right. and not Soren. But anyway, uh-huh. that's fine. <laughs> I think I was always, let's say, conservation ecologically minded, holistically minded. Um, But teaching conservation biology really made me, I think, understand far better what it's all about. Mm. So, yeah, so I think I've always been concerned about human impact on the environment. Mm -hmm. And, And forestry is certainly one of the huge impacts that we have I mentioned to you that I, I listened to your the podcast that you're oh. doing through Blamadon's Naturalist Society right. with Caroline. Caroline, Bidot. yeah, Bidot. and um, and one of the things that you said in your first uh, conversation together that struck me was about when you were teaching um, conservation biology, and you just touched upon that a bit, I guess, right. where you were doing it in kind of a traditional manner, but then you realized um, that it needed to be dealt with a lot more holistically, and you were bringing yes. in economists and you know. St- pe- studying religion and all sorts of things all sorts of things yes. yeah i'm just curious about about that and how you feel like looking at it in that different way affected people differently 
one of the things I always stress is that we live in kind of the Newtonian or mechanical worldview in, in the West, where we look at everything as a machine, basically, that's composed of parts. And if you fix the parts, then you, if you understand the parts, then you understand the whole, which of course is totally erroneous. Um, but I think our whole ap approach to conservation is very much, much based in that kind of me mechanistic worldview. Uh, so, for example, if we have a few protected areas, that should be enough because then we won't touch them and, and, and nature can do its thing there. Um, we, we survey species and, and if a particular species is uh, becoming endangered, then we start doing something. Yeah, so I think, um, so the classical approach that the, like, the governments take are based in that mechanistic worldview, which is uh, taking care of some of the parts, and then we can do what we want on the rest of the landscape. So it it, as, it assumes that we humans are outside of nature, um, and and nature is there. I love the uh, book uh, Braiding Sweetgrass, where she says like we need to look at at nature as us not as a storehouse of resources, but as providing gifts. I think that's a beautiful way of putting it, because we are looking at nature forest as, as a storehouse where we can just go in and take what we want. And sure, that we'll try and do it sustainably, but really we never achieve that. Where if we looked at it as from a holistic perspective and, and that nature provided us with gifts, that would totally change how we, how we approach it. Yeah. And I think that's so essential. It's a nicer feeling, too, to think that we're part of a world where we're given gifts and we exactly. can give gifts back. Yes. And, yeah. Hmm. Totally. Um, so, so, and that's what I tried to convey in, in my conservation classes, that, that we are a part of nature. We're not out of, outside of it. Um, and that um, in order to really understand that we're part of nature, we can't just, it's not just science that's, ne that's needed. We need to understand, you know, human psychology and um, and and economics and religion and all all those components that make up being a human um, is essential to understand in order for us to figure out how to live sustainably, as opposed to what we're doing now. So, so in forestry, they say they're doing it sustainably. Well. No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's not. Yeah, and, and um, yeah, this is one of the things I'm really cur curious about and think it's so important that we all get to the bottom of somehow, obviously. Like, I know lots of people care about this in, in our region. Yes. And, and why do you think they think they're doing it sustainably? Is it a real, like, mismatch in belief systems or, or is it just more trickery or, um, <sighs> like, what's going on, do you think? Yeah, what's going on? Well, if you have, um, say, a, a, a thousand parcels of land, and then you clear cut one parcel, and then you wait, and then you clear cut the next one, the next one, the next one. By the time you've clear cut the last one, then yeah, maybe that first one has grown up into something, so that you can come back and, and cut that down. So they look at sustainability, I, like the way I see it, from the fact that there's a land base and they're clear cutting. Um, at a certain rate and by the time they come back it'll, it'll have grown back up to where it was 
but it can't do that in 50 years or 40 years or 60 years, um, then that, that then it's sustainable. But that's a v- lack of really understanding w- what it's all about because the forest types in Nova Scotia, all forest types have certain kind of disturbance regimes that affect them. So the Acadian forest, like they desperately try to say that it's impacted by, by uh, fire. But of course, I think finally now they have gone away from that because fire is not that important a component in Nova Scotia forest. Mm-hmm. It's fairly rare. Um, wind storms are probably more common, but but they're also rare. So the disturbance in Acadian in the Acadian forest is really one that creates gap dynamics. The tree dies, or a bunch of a cluster of trees blow down. Maybe every 800 years, a whole swath of trees are blown down. So the Acadian forest is is um, used to being just impacted sporadically in very small spots. Um, unlike, say, the boreal forest, which certainly is, is is its primary disturbance is fire, uh, which varies on an extent. But still, to argue that you can clear cut that clear cutting simulates a forest fire sure like a fire will affect a a large chunk several hectares hundred hectares maybe but i mean all the nutrients that were there are still are left in the ground all the trunks if they don't burn are still there where when you clear cut like you remove all the nutrients so the cycling of nutrients is totally disrupted i see um so if you really wanted to emulate the disturbance in, say, the Acadian forest, you'd go in and pick up just the odd tree here and there now and again, uh, and that would be be okay. Um, so that would be the way, to, I think, to really conduct forestry in Nova Scotia. Not Clear-cutting is not a, is, does not simulate, emulate a natural disturbance by any means. Um, and there certainly are examples in Nova Scotia uh, I don't know if you've uh, Jim Drescher. Do you know that name? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, the way he used to um, harvest trees was, was just taking the single tree out now and again. So he never dis- uh, broke the canopy up. It was always a, a closed canopy, or like, or the canopy closed in very quickly after a, a tree was taken out. And then um, he practiced like value-added industry and uh, yes. approach to it, so that instead of just cutting a tree down turning it into pulp or whatever. He went the, the value-added route, which I think makes so much more sense, mm-hmm. makes more money. Um, but, yeah, clear-cutting is strictly a means of very quickly turning a forest into dollars yeah, for so, very few people. So if you're going to take a tree out of the forest, it would be smart to make that t- to make it worth the absolute most value you Absol- could. Exactly. And then another thing I think Jim would, and probably other people that do similar forestry, is wouldn't he, he would never take the absolute best trees in an area either, and he would let those yeah, um, no, be the seed trees yeah, so that the forest could yes. keep. Yeah, he has a, a certain, I forget, 10 points in, in selecting a, a mm. tree. Um, point. Yeah, but, I'll hopefully talk but, to Jim too. I used yeah. to live at Windhorse Farm actually. Oh, is that right? I lived okay. and worked there for a few oh, years. Neat. Yeah. 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 Huh. yeah. To be clear, clear cutting is still happening in Nova Scotia, even though ecological forestry is being applied to some areas. 
There are also a lot of different terms used in current forestry, and many practices that are still a long way off from the type of forestry that Soren describes, where only a tree or a few trees are taken. I certainly think that the taking of less, but finding more value in what is taken, is an important consideration. So so the other thing, I guess, about clear-cutting is that the forest takes a lot longer to regenerate than they're they're letting it, but also yes. it doesn't regenerate in the same way. It doesn't right? regenerate in the same way. And especially when you have these short, short um, rotations, it becomes all the, the shade intolerant trees that come in like poplars and birch and, um, and balsam fir. Balsam fir is an interesting one because it does grow in the shade, but it also likes it in light. Mm-hmm. But uh, the, the shade tolerant trees... Um, hemlocks and sugar maple and yellow birch and um, trees like that, uh, red spruce, they they don't get, get a chance to really come back. So the whole forest is, is changed. And then you, you, well, and they don't do a lot of planting in Nova Scotia, I find, which in a sense is good because often when you plant, then you plant like it's a clone, you plant clone species or whatever you want. Mm. And... Uh, and, and in terms of susceptibility to insect damage or whatever um, uh, is, is, mu- is much increased uh, because of that. So I think we are suffering from um, like the pulp and paper industry that came in and but what a mercy was in early 1900s, I think. But that's when the pulp and paper, like the paper industry started. And of course, like they just want lots of pulp, so they cut any any uh, coniferous tree and chop it up and turn it into paper, and then the the hardwoods, the, the the maples and the oaks and yellow birch and stuff were often, if they were cut, it was just for firewood, uh, and we we see that still, and man, if if we managed for hardwoods, I think there would be such a a use for really nice wood but then people say well it, it, it's all it's not very good wood well they never managed for it and the stuff that grows up after a clear cut is uh, is is not very it's, it's not the same as what would grow normally like if you cut down a hardwood tree a, a maple a birch uh, sugar the sugar maple and oak whatever um, and leave the stump the tree above the ground it's not there anymore but it's still alive down below and then you get all these uh, shoots that come up and then you get this cluster of of trees coming up that are all not that useful for anything right except uh, except for firewood in some places (laughs) they manage that right i'm thinking of like the coppicing in britain and and, coppicing sure and that's a yeah. different way of doing things, I guess. But but, but the coppicing is more... I lived in Norway for five years, and there they coppiced especially ash. But they cut the branches off because that was the feed for the sheep and the cattle in ah. the wintertime because they didn't necessarily have, have as much hay or possibility to make hay there. So they cut those branches off and dried them out, and that was the feed for the animals during the wintertime. Ah, okay. So And that produces these interesting looking trunks with big knobs on them and lots of branches coming out but it's the same thing that happens at ground level right yeah 
Okay. Yeah, and I and I I guess that some places too they've um done building with like the green roundwood too that comes up from the smaller coppice wood. Okay. I, but yeah. but I mean I guess all of these ideas are are possibilities or they they work in places where there's already industry set up around them but it's sort yeah. of do you, would you say we've kind of got stuck into this um pulpwood industry from what we used to try to I, s- Yes. And I now think so. our forests are kind of and every the way we do things is sort of set up for that and, yeah. and there's this talk about I hear a lot of talk now about like we need to find markets for the so-called low-grade wood yes, and right chip it and burn it for energy which or electricity which is not yeah see and so we're back to the warehouse notion right of, of just we got to make money from the from whatever it is that grows even if it's low value stuff yeah, clear and clear cutting is it, it only makes sense because of the machinery now used that's so expensive that if you don't run it twenty four seven, you can't pay for it, and it takes one person to level a huge area, um, or one person can level a huge area in no time. Mm-hmm. There's no skill in clear cutting because you just take everything. But if you want to take just the odd tree out, then it requires a lot of skill. So it's a lot easier to just say, you know, chomp it all down. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So how can we fix this? Do you have any how ideas? How do we fix it? <laughs> well, I, I really wish that they would take um, the Leahy report to heart and, and really put a moratorium on cutting, especially crown land, and then try to get it right. But of course... The industry is so, like, a few individuals make a lot of money. Mm. So they're, they're not interested in ecological forestry. They want to, and all the crown land down in the southern part of the province has, hasn't been touched for so long. So it's, it's, you know, maximum value they can get out of that with very little uh, employment. Because the employment in forestry has gone down and down and down. Whereas the amount of cutting is pretty well level, but the the earnings are also going down. So we are cutting less and like we're cutting trees that have less and less value. I see. Um, and that's all you need to do is go into Stats Canada and download all the stats from like on forestry um, and just plot the numbers. It's it's obvious. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a strange thing too because it seems like that's one of the the big arguments that you hear from forestry that well oh, Nova Scotia a, needs forestry because yeah, it provides it, jobs uh, and that's not really that's what's not, the well, case it anymore. Does, it, it does provide a few jobs yeah. and it's providing fewer and fewer jobs. But I think using that argument is often if people don't really know what's going on then it's oh yeah, people do have to work so and people do yeah. have to work. Yeah, the, you know, we all have true. to make a living. Mm-hmm. Um but it's just too bad that they argue that people have to make a living that destroys the potential of the landscape in the future. Mm-hmm. And um, the living for so many other beings. Yeah, exactly. And so much money that's being made in Nova Scotia, probably, I don't know how much of it leaves the province, but it, there's no benefit uh, to the, for the province. And the, the stumpage fee that the government collects is, is peanuts. I have looked at the provincial budgets and, and looked at how much they take in from the forestry industry and how much they pay 
like Department of Lands and Forestry to do their business and, and then the, the subsidies and everything else they get. We're not making money on it. The province is not making money. They're probably losing money, but I can't remember the yeah, particular numbers. That's really dis- numbers. disappointing when it seems like the only reason this is happening is for economic reasons, and if yeah. it's not even achieving good economic outcomes. What well, a except for the few people that are in the industry. Right. They, they make a nice living, but... Yeah. <laughs> but uh, if that... But, but the the you know the 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 crown land the the land that belongs to and of course the land really belongs to the Mi'kmaq, but it, it, the way it's set up is the crown land belongs to all Nova Scotians, and but they're not benefiting from it in any ways. If if anything, we're losing out on it because of the potential for carbon storage and. Um, that we're missing out on. And the argument that, well, the new forest that's coming in, it's going to absorb a lot of carbon. An intact forest, old forest, it, it captures so much more carbon than, than a new growing forest does. Yeah. You know, and all it stores so much carbon. Yeah, and yeah. hopefully that's something people will start to pay more attention to. Do you, do you see that changing at all? Have you noticed more talk about climate change and carbon sequestration? In Yeah, I think it, it's certainly something that's in, on people's minds. Um, so I think there's talk about it, but I don't know that it's resulting in any... Um, in any change provincially. Mm. Because I, I think the the government always seems to to bend to the will of the of the forest industry, and the whole like the part of lands and forestry were originally set up to promote forestry to help you know companies make money out of the out of woods. That that's how they why they were became a department in the first place. It was to promote it, just like the Department of Agriculture is there to help farmers be better farmers or to make right. more money from farming mm-hmm. um, and the, the same with the Department of Lands and Forestry yeah, yeah. so yeah. as a professor of biology yeah. and someone who um, and, and you're also the head of the Blomidon Naturalist Society yes. and right. you obviously care about um, the forestry in Nova Scotia so from all these um, perspectives what are what would you say the key areas as a society like in our area of Mi'kma'ki that we need to work on um, to um, not get overwhelmed and, you know, is there some... Yeah, no, I, I'm just, I don't know how, like everybody always talks about if you want change, then it, it's done at the ballot box. Um, you know, so we had a liberal government when um, Leahy was doing his report and then now we have a conservative. But I'm, and, and I was a little worried that a conservative government would kind of s- scrap the whole thing, but I think they are actually a little bit more... They seem a little bit more concerned than the previous government was in terms of forestry. But still, I, you know, I don't know how it works, but it certainly seems that money talks. And, and, they, and the forest industry, they have a huge influence on what goes on. And, and, and I, I don't know what the, what the stick is that they can use uh, to to convince them to just you know drag out the process with ecological forestry and 
we'll just forge ahead as fast as we can. I was part of the, um, the group that challenged the Species at Risk Act and, and, and won it. But in, it, you know, it's too bad if one has to go to court, in a sense, to, to get something done that should be done, like because legally they were supposed to do it, right? Yeah. But they didn't. Um, the public is often less organized than the forestry industry, so they, they can spend money on, on all the PR that then comes, comes back to the public, and you know, they are doing it sustainably, and uh, you know, the trees are going to die anyway type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it, I think it's, it's the... It's, and, and it's the same with uh, global warming and, and, and our, you know, our commitments to the Paris Accord and, 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 and still, you know, nothing happens because the, and I just read that the oil industry, they're, they're, they're going to be expanding in a huge way. Um, so it's, it's money. It's, it's, it's unfortunate. And it's all like, and it, I blame it on our economic system. Because our economic system is set up such that the ultimate, it's always the bottom line. Never mind anything else. The bottom line is what, what it's all about. And, and so making money is, uh, is sacrosanct. Even if it's people who already have billions of dollars making even more money. Um, and the way it's going out, like the, the gap between the poor and the rich is, is widening fast. Um, and, and, and our economic system is something we invented. We can change it. Yes. Ah, good heavens, it's not as if it's something that's, that, that's set, in, set in stone. I, I do think that uh, greed, unfortunately, is something that is real. And, and, uh, but our, when it comes to our economic system, we can alter it. Um, but, of course, again, it's the people at the top, all the money people, they don't want to see that because they want to make more and more and more money. Right. Um, and it's working for them. And it's working for them. And then we have shareholders that invest their monies. And many of them probably haven't got a clue where the money is invested, but it's they want to see their money grow. So the corporations are, I think, even by law, have to, you know, have as much return to the investors as possible. Yeah. Um, no, it does yeah. sort of seem like the, the most people who think about it care a lot about this, and we all just feel so powerless. Like, Yes. It, well, yeah, and I even have some difficulty reconciling, like, like when you were saying there's a lot of greed involved in the current systems. Um, yeah, I still, th- I still have this, you know, deep down belief that people are you know, good. I'm putting that in quotes because I don't even know about the idea of good versus bad. But, you know, people mean well or that they have some sort of shared values that they all want, you know, their families to be healthy and they want to, all these things, connection. And and, and so, like, how does, is it the economic system that allows, like, greed to kind of take over and then maybe deep down everyone has these similarities, but they get masked with the, the, these... Yeah. Um, I like to think that, like when when we when we didn't have money, when we lived in smaller societies, if somebody went out hunting and and caught a moose or a caribou, whatever, 
then there was a huge amount of nutrition but it was way too much for that one person and if they hoarded it it was going to rot and disappear so the only sensible thing would be to share it with your in your community then maybe next time it was somebody else in the community who shot the moose or the whatever and then shared that so it became a system of of of, of sharing because you couldn't hoard it now once we invented money then you can hoard it because it's not going to go bad and in our current system if you hoard it and invest it it actually grows and makes more money so i think that that has changed things a lot because i think generally speaking rich people they don't share the money but poor people are always quite happy to share what they have yeah that's interesting which, uh, which is interesting yeah. yeah so um yeah we're we're, we're caught in this unfortunate economic system that probably benefited us in the beginning like way back but it, I think it's run its course and it really is based on this uh, this notion of survival of the fittest um, which Darwin never said it was an economist who invented the term survival of the fittest and it was um, used in within e economics as a means of you know, out-competing anybody else and, and making more and more money for yourself. Darwin did eventually adopt the phrase survival of the fittest, um, but it, it really is a, like it's a circular term. Who are the fittest? The ones that survive. Who survives the fittest? So it doesn't, doesn't really say much <laughs> in a sense. But um, so, I, so, so I've, I've argued in my writing that this the survival of the fittest mantra has run its course and needs to be replaced with an, a new one which I think needs to be something about caring for each other and sharing caring and sharing uh, equitably yeah would be the the way to go and and I think if if that changed then we would suddenly do things quite differently right and and so because in a, in ecology cooperation is just as important as yeah. competition yes right but it's it's interesting in ecology or in science because we often focus on competition so that when biologists go out and look at systems they're looking for competition they're looking for examples of competition oh, and finding it uh-huh but if you start looking for examples of of cooperation you can find that as well but Right. That that's not as popular. I in a see. Sense. Well, of course, it depends so, what you're, what you're, what lens you're looking through, exactly. and what you find. Yes. Yeah. That's really. So. Yeah. So uh, yeah. So in 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 nature, you can go out and find examples for whatever you want. Somewhat like the internet now, people can search the internet for evidence that supports their point of view, regardless of what it is. I right? see. Yes. <laughs> which is, I think, which is the danger. In, in not being critical and looking at mm. at evidence or looking at situations but your yeah but your point about if the economic system is built on the it was created based on the idea in a way that or, or completely or on the idea of survival of the fittest. Yeah, survival just to of make the more fittest, money, more money. That, that it could equally well be based on um, cooperation yes, or sharing and yeah. caring, and we could reinvent that system totally theoretically, that. and our economic system could function for yes. us and the planet yeah. and look completely different. Totally and it's almost different. Yes. impossible to envision just because we've been stuck in the system for so long. Exactly. 
So we, mm. we don't think that there's any alternative. We think that our current economic system is like sacrosanct. It's, you know, that we have to uh, solve our problems within that system, which I don't think we can. I see. Because it's not designed for that. So I think, yeah, so, so forestry is just one of the issues we're dealing with. Mm-hmm. Like there's so many others that fall into the same kind of basket or same category. It's where, and it's wherever we interact with nature. Yeah. Um, like agriculture, industrial agriculture is moving in, in a horrible direction where there are less and less people involved, uh, hired or working. It's, it's becoming more and more mechanized. We're getting bigger and bigger tractors and, and machinery. You, and you see that certainly in the Annapolis Valley. And, and crops are grown not with the sense of we got to feed people, but it's, they're more like cash crops. What can I plant to make the most money? Yeah. And, and um, where if, if you look at organic agriculture, it's like there it's much more taking care of the soil and, and food security is becoming so much more of an issue. Well, I do think about how f- the f- food systems are interconnected with all the other issues too. Like, yeah. like I've wondered actually about f- forestry, how it might change weather patterns that then would affect agriculture, or what about if too much biodiversity is lost and then the pollinators aren't able to pollinate sure. the food? I mean, oh, those yeah. are intimately those connected are, too. Oh yeah, it's it's all interconnected, right? And this is what. And now we come back to this mechanical worldview, because in the mechanical worldview, where like it's just a machine then the parts are separate and two parts may interact but the it the, the interactions is not what's important it's the parts but nature it's all those interactions how the, everything depends on each other yeah and yeah so pollinators is is a huge yeah once they're gone the, the i forget what proportion of our crops will not be able to be pollinated but then we'll probably find some technological solutions and this is the problem right we keep in in nature when a population reaches a limit then there's a negative feedback which then knocks the population back and then there's a balance but what we humans do whenever we encounter a negative feedback we use technology to overcome it and then we keep moving our merry way in essence i see and and uh uh, and think that we're doing so well until the real big negative feedback arrives. Um, and we can't figure out a technology we can't figure out, to... Well, we may not <laughs> be able to fix it fast enough. Right. Um, so yeah. Oh, it can be all very depressing at times. It can be depressing. <laughs> well, let's... Uh, okay, yeah. so maybe I can ask you, can you talk a bit about how people's perspectives shift as our relationship to nature becomes stronger? Yeah, that's uh, that is something I'm working on, and I think if if people, if you spend more time in nature, out and really begin to understand and sense how you are a part of nature, that that we're in essence we're we're all not that very different from each other, um, then I think you can begin to appreciate that you have to. Be, you can't just do as you please but I think you have to be willing like in the first place you have to be willing to be open to that possibility right. if, and, and if, if you're not then you know 
then it's not going to happen. No, that's another so, catch twenty two. Which is another catch twenty two. Right. <laughs> exactly. Okay. So, yeah. So, so when so when you were teaching um, students about conservation, h- how did you like? I'm thinking, how can this be applied to the broader population? How did you help them realize that con- conservation was important, um, not not just for the other yeah. species, but for humans too? That that's an interesting thing because in. Um, the students taking conservation, taking my conservation course, were already concerned about conservation, right? And I always thought, how am I going to reach all the students who are not, who don't want to take conservation, who probably need it more than the ones taking it? So I, I did um, have the, my students do major projects where they had to go out and, and educate other uh, students. So the we they put on debates uh we went to various like to high schools and and uh middle middle schools and had the students give presentations we when uh it became easier to, with cell phones to make videos i had them do um little like youtube videos to educate people so i did did a lot of that to try to reach other other students but one of the interesting things is I think is that you, we often say that well if people become educated then they'll change and unfortunately I don't think that's necessarily the case um, I took part in a lifeboat debate once at Acadia with a bunch of other um, professors from other departments and the moderator was a historian and at the end of it he said I used to be a really heavy smoker I knew all the reasons why I should stop smoking. I knew all the health hazards. I understood all the stuff that had been written up about smoking, but it had absolutely no impact on me. And it wasn't until he had a personal experience with the the harmful effects of smoking that he stopped. So to me, that was a real eye-opener. So I think you can tell people all kinds of facts and figures as to why they should alter their behavior but it isn't until they have a personal experience mm-hmm. which is not based on science or academics or anything it's, it's just a, a, a you know that personal um, exposure to some aspect yes. and then they change then they'll change an emotional reaction like an emotional to reaction it. as opposed to a, 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 an intellectual reaction yeah right and that really made me realize that yeah, I think filling people's with all kinds of statistics and why what's going to happen has no impact. No, or sometimes it could have the opposite impact where you do just get so overwhelmed and depressed. Yes, And then exactly. you need to just step back from it and pr- to protect yourself, you exactly. need to ignore oh, yeah. it completely. Precisely. So yes. It, it, yeah. N- yeah. So it's um, it's a real conundrum. Mm-hmm. Like, how do you? change people's minds who don't really want to be have their minds changed <laughs> yeah um, and then all the polarization that's and happening then polarization too. oh yeah no exactly and um, yeah no it's unfortunate and the, there seems to be a real reaction against um, scientific explanations that like we saw that during COVID I think that you know uh, there's a resistance by some people, not everybody, of course, uh, to being told what to do and, and harmful effects. And, you know, it's always, it's always other people that have to do things. It's not yourself. 
that have to change, right? And like I said earlier, you can, whatever point of view you have, you can go find evidence for it. Mm-hmm. But being critical is not finding evidence that supports your point of view. Being critical is going out and, and evaluating all the evidence and, and then weighing it and saying, well, yeah, 10% supports my view, but there's 90% that does not support my view, so therefore I probably ought to change my point of view on whatever it is. Um, and I think we see now politicians really taking advantage of that, some politicians, or, you know, that are that promote this disinformation or says, ah, yeah, it's not, don't believe it, and ah, all that stuff. Scary. Yeah. Very scary. That is scary. At the same time, there's so many people that care. Yes. And so, <clears throat> yes. How, Hopefully, enough people. Yeah. And how do we kind of, uh, what, what is it like? How does that get leveraged? And how do people, I, I, like maybe part of it is that people don't, it's even hard to remember that there are a lot of people around that do care sometimes. Yes. Yeah. And so maybe we need to somehow do a better job of connecting with one another. Like Yes, no, I think that's important. And I think we have, we have lost our sense of community. And I think it's, it's clear that we have to get back in communities and, and begin to cultivate relationships with the people around you, your community. And, I, and again, part of the, the problem with all this... Um, electronics uh, connections we have you can like you can have a community that's spread around the world of people that have the same view as you but if you have a local community in an area I think then you have to begin to listen to the different perspectives different points of view within your local community it's oh that's so strange it's like creating this monoculture of thought yeah where monocultures never do well in nature monocultures (laughs) never do well no yeah um, what's something you're working on right now or learning that you um, that you'd like to tell us about? Yeah, so like, so I, I don't know if I'm doing anything new. I'm like being part of the Blomden Naturalist Society. I'm really continuing what I did at teaching conservation biology. So that that's quite that's important to me. Right. So, and, so if I understand it, you're you're trying to to shift from just caring about and being interested in nature to being more of an advocate yes, for nature? Yes, yeah, absolutely. And, and, and talk about why it's important and taking people out on field trips and getting them excited about what they see and, and not to get caught up in thinking they have to be experts in order to have an opinion about something. Because that whole notion of experts, that's another thing. We've arrived at a stage where individuals, we can't do anything without asking experts. Yeah. But often experts, yeah, they can tell you a lot about this, but they don't see how it all interacts and is interconnected and such. So I really despise the term expert. Try not to use it. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. And and don't want to be described by anybody as an expert. Okay. Well, I'll remember that. <laughs> yeah. No, but the big no. picture thinking. And yeah. The, big yeah, picture thinking. thinking stuff. And you so. can enjoy a forest without knowing what's there. Yes. Necessarily. Because there's, right. like, you just open your eyes and your ears and your sense of smell and mm-hmm. touch and feel. Like, you can gain a lot from just being immersed in a forest and being impacted by it without really knowing what it is. Yeah. I think um, and that's so important, I think. 
Right. That you, yeah, you can connect and, you can connect. and find wonder and and joy in your surroundings without yes. having to, well, to have any specific knowledge about yeah. what's happening. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Like it, it, it might benefit if you begin. So once you have reached that stage, then you can begin to try to learn what it is you're looking at. But see, and again, coming back to this mechanical worldview, so many people want to know, like often when I take people out, you know, a bird might sing or a, there might be a plant and they, what's that? Oh, that's in such and such. Oh, okay. Exactly. Good grief. Like that's yeah. knowing the name of something doesn't is pointless in a sense if you don't know anything else about I it. I know. Right? It's yeah. it's insane, really. I completely agree. <laughs> uh, yeah. But um, so often it's just knowing the name should be enough. Mm-hmm. Anyways. I've done some work with the nature, you know, kids and, and, and outdoor right. immersion. Yeah. And, uh, and then, yeah, and there's a whole, you know, philosophy around um, how people learn and to not, um, to, to, to if, if someone asks you, what, what is that called? You try to actually avoid telling them yes. because they will have that reaction where they're like, oh, now I know, check. And they yes. move on without thinking <laughs> exactly. anything else about like, well, yes. what is it doing and how, yeah. who does it interact with and, right. and all those things. So, so I think we do have a societal like problem with labeling. <laughs> Absolutely. Too. Yeah, when I, yeah. When I used to teach and I got that question, I would never give the answer. I would say, well, let's find out. Let's see if we can figure out what it is. So that you look, yeah. But still, you have to go beyond the name um, and learn so much more. And I think it's the Mi'kmaq, they have these circles of knowing something. Well, the outer circle is the name, but that's all it is. And then there's more and more information about it as you move in towards the center. Oh, neat. Yeah, no, not which aware is, of that. No, um, I, I think, and then, like, once you begin to really know something about it and understand it and see how it relates to other things, then then you begin to really know it. Wow, th- yeah. this is making me think of the whole, like, the problem with the ec- economics. I, I mean, everything everything we've talked about in a way, it seems like, oh, is this a societal addiction with uh, naming something and then just deciding this is how it is, we don't need to, like, look further? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. No, prob- probably at some level, yeah. Yeah. Which... It's like, oh, we've called it this thing now. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. I have to put more thought into that. Right. It's yeah, not no, quite yes, sorted sure. in my brain yes. yet. But anyway. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, yeah. But I am curious about the species at risk case that you worked on. Right. So so basically in, in 2020, the judge said that the Novus, or the Minister of Lands and Forestry had not been doing their job and right. weren't protecting properly the species at yeah. risk in Nova Scotia. Yes. And she said... You have to fix that. They had, yeah, they didn't so, do what was laid out in the legislation. And and yeah. have they? Um, are they I, now? Yeah, they're starting to do it. Okay. Uh, and I, you know, it's it's not as if they can salt do do that really quickly, because mm-hmm. it is a lengthy process to like to get a, a, a recovery team together and write the reports and collect the information and write it up. And there's only a couple of people, I think, in the wildlife division that are working on it so so, yeah so so i think they are moving ahead um just coming back to moose i think it's unfortunate that they aren't like so so moose are endangered but they still allow forestry clear cutting to take place um which which is what's harming the mainland moose 
But I don't think that's the fault of the of the biologists working on the recovery plan. That's still higher up. There's, you know, being influenced by the uh, forestry industry to just continue cutting. So, so is the so, forestry industry somehow more powerful than the law saying you need to protect these species? Well, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and and they'll, yeah. Yeah, what, what happens if they don't follow, like, so, yeah, so I don't Yeah, it's like, what, what are the repercussions mm-hmm. if they don't do it? Um, they're, they're, I don't know that there really are any, other than the auditor can come back and say, wait a minute, you were supposed to do this three years ago, you still haven't done it, which the auditor did, what, three times? Tell the government that... that you know they're supposed to have a, this, these things done with species of risk, but they didn't do it. So what's the consequence? There is no consequence, I don't think, because it's not like yeah, it's not as if you can say okay, you're all fired then, like because yeah. that's at the top level. Yeah, right. Um, yeah. But you obviously so. felt it was worthwhile to. Yes, and and it became it got into the public sphere, and 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 certainly there was pressure, and, and like I say, they are slowly doing now what they're supposed to do, um, but it's just when they when they know, like especially with the mainland moose, what they're doing is harming the moose, and they continue. It's a little odd, but then it, it's again the argument. Well, like I've heard the argument. Well, clear cutting is good because it brings up lots of brows. So that's good for moose, but uh, like if 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 a person had to live in a in the corner, a quick way store and survive there, yeah, there might be food, but there's no place to sleep. There's no place to do anything else. But the food is there, and and moose, in fact, sure they use the browse and clear cuts to some extent, but but there's they need so much more cover for uh, in the summer for heat and 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 in the winter. Um, so, so they need that combination of habitat within a certain area, and then you can't just have it here. It's got to be interconnected. So it's yeah, it's not easy. Mm-hmm. But in terms of if they don't do it, what's the consequence? There really isn't any, I don't think. Yeah, other than another lawsuit, and then then they can say again, oh yeah, sorry. Now we'll yeah, do we're it. working on it. Here's some paperwork, and <laughs> yeah, yeah, Tyron, so, it's just so. Yeah, it's yeah, it's very frustrating. Yeah, I guess one of the things I'm trying to figure out with this whole podcast is like, what is our power as citizens, or what is our and, and our responsibility? Like, where do we actually have? What can we do? Yeah, that's a big question. That's a huge question, <laughs> and I think like they always say, well, you know, it's in the in the ballot box, or like when during elections, but then. Uh, the last election in Ontario, what was it, like 45% or less came out and voted? <laughs> Which, wait a minute. So I think the a responsibility in a democracy is to vote. But then you have our representatives who are not carrying, yeah, carrying no, through with the law even. Exactly, yes. Yeah, so, so what... Um, I think it's in Switzerland they, they vote two or three times a year. To, to see if the government is actually doing what they're supposed to do. Because here, you you know, they're voted in, then for four years they can do as they please, basically. Right. Uh, but yeah, no, I don't know how you huh. fix that. No. Um, and we can say, well, educate the people. But like I said, I don't know that education is really what's important. Yeah. It's, it's people have to be emotionally 
engaged in right in, and 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 that's something they need to seek out themselves mostly that, you can't really exactly. force that on people force that on people yeah. no. okay well where do you find hope and inspiration then when you're dealing with all these things all the time what what is hmm. it that keeps you hope i'm assuming you must have some hope oh i'm hopeful for sure i guess i've i find that being active is what you know i'm doing as much as i can personally and that gives me I don't know if it gives me hope actually but at least it, doing what I can and trying to influence people around me mm-hmm. and then making sure that I'm not always engaged in that so I have a sailboat and I can sail off into the ocean and forget about it all uh-huh. <laughs> and then re- rejuvenate and then come back I guess yeah and I guess w- what does give me hope is I think Humans are amazing in that when it really comes down, like when things really get bad, we do help each other out. Mm-hmm. Um, but it always it requires some major impact, major catastrophe, major something before we've come together and help each other out. Yeah. And, and then and we're very good at that. Right. So we don't then withdraw even more. We do come together. So when you see if somebody's house burns down immediately people you know donate money help them out and do whatever they can so I think when things get really bad we do we do come together and help each other out and I guess that is gives me hope so sometimes I think man if we only had a catastrophe now then we could all get together and solve this yeah, but but a catastrophe that is recognizable as an immediate it, catastrophe. It has to be that. that yeah, exactly. that's, yeah, that's yeah. a tricky thing, isn't and it? And that's with a tricky this? thing, yes. Global warming is an interesting thing because we don't... Yeah, it's a little warmer now, and it, but you don't really sense it. So therefore, it's not yet a, a big catastrophe. Though there are more hurricanes and more wildfires and more of that, but it, it's it's elsewhere, so it's hard to to really sense it. And the same with endangered species, like when species disappear, we don't really see it, sense it. Um, I forget when the bats disappeared because of the white nose syndrome. Like there used to be lots of bats, they're all gone now. I don't think too many people think about there aren't any bats around anymore. No. So, so So many of those ecological changes are, are not, really big and immediate mm-hmm. for us to notice them and therefore we shuck it off. Yeah, or they're slow enough and removed enough that you somehow acclimatize to and the change too. Exactly, yes. Yeah, because yeah. Yeah, one of the things I often, like if you read really early literature from, from say, Canada, uh, like the number of all kinds of species that people encounter was phenomenal. But each of us, when we're young and first, whatever, 10 years of our lives, that's when the the standard has been set and then we gauge change in relationship to what it was like when we were young so so the older you get the more change you see but each generation that's born like to them it's normal that there are no bats for example or that there are lots of hurricanes because that's normal Um, Uh so it becomes i think difficult to gauge like long-term change. That's a really, it seems like a really important point because even then, if you do look back and are very well-versed in history and you right. can understand the changes, but then that's just 
that's an intellectual understanding. Uh, you can exactly. never have the emotional can, connection to no. the feeling of that being true. Exactly. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, darn. Darn it. Exactly. <laughs> I know. Uh, so, uh, yeah. Uh-huh. So, okay. Well, there's yeah. just another barrier we need to figure another out how to overcome. Barrier. Exactly. Hmm. Exactly. Is there anything else you wanted to say on any of these topics today? Yeah, I think it's, it's really important to understand that it's our economic system that has, you know, benefited us to get to where we are, but now it's uh, causing all kinds of problems and that our economic system is something that we created, we can change it. And it's, it's that system that needs to be changed. And I think it's in Norway, and I may be totally wrong, where the lowest salary and the highest salary can only be so different, um, which would hugely benefit, would, would solve, partly solve the inequity that exists. And I think in, it's in Bhutan where their system is like it's based on happiness and yes. not uh, uh, GDP. Yeah, GDH maybe. GDH, yeah, yeah, GDH, right. So, so, so it's just a matter of making a decision. Yeah. Um, and surely in a democracy, we should be able to do that. Hmm. Okay, so that's where we maybe need to be putting our focuses I, if you care you know, about I all these so. different issues. Yeah. The root of it is the problem with the current economic system. I, that's what I, I think, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, Thank you okay. so much, Thorne. Oh, oh, you're welcome. I think we covered a lot of ground We did here. cover a lot, yes. <laughs> so. Yes. We did cover a lot of ground. And I look forward to expanding on some of what we touched upon over time during future shared ground conversations. Much of what we discussed during this conversation, Soren develops in his latest book, Voles, Not Moles, A Personal Connection with Nature. There happen to be some similarities in our conversation and that of the last episode with Rosemary Lonis about our economic system being at the root of many of our current societal and environmental challenges. As I mentioned last time, I'm currently studying the economic dimension of Gaia Education's course, Design for Sustainability and Regeneration, and I have become aware of some interesting and promising alternatives. I've included some of these in the show notes for those of you who would like to delve deeper into that. Also, I was surprised to learn that Canada is involved in some things that I was unaware of. For instance, Canada has been implementing different measurements of well-being beyond GDP, and Nanaimo, B.C., is adopting Kate Raworth's model of donut economics. I've included links to info about these two. Thank you for listening to Shared Ground. I look forward to our next conversation and want to remind you to follow or subscribe to the podcast and also that there is a Facebook page for additional resources and photos. Until next time, fellow humans.